click that, make sure it's going. If in the process of this sermon you feel ouch, know that I feel the same. So, 1 Samuel 9. 1 Samuel 9. We're in this series, King of Hearts, on the books of First and Second Samuel. Remind you of the theme, what's going on in this book. Well, maybe not. Young Dan, am I connected to this? Hello. Well polished here at Regen, if this is your first time. Hey, did it go? Okay. Go to that bottom right, that full screen button. There we go. Yes. Click it. Yeah. Good job. Despite their outright rejection of his kingship, we saw this in 1 Samuel 8, the Lord still seeks to be the king of his people's hearts and to move his redemptive purposes forward. God opposes Saul and David in their pride, but when David humbles himself, the Lord exalts him. The book invites us to look forward to the Messianic King, Jesus, who is God's very own heart and who will bring God's kingdom and blessing to the nations. You'll remember that there's a few key characters in the book here. Those first seven chapters of the book really focus on Samuel, but we're shifting our attention. Samuel will still be in view, but we're shifting our attention to Saul, especially today. And uh, I think you'll find this interesting. So if you've got a Bible, 1 Samuel 9 is where we're going to begin today. In verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin and could not find them. In 1 Samuel 9, we're introduced to Saul, Saul the tall, handsome as can be, and he has a problem. His father's donkeys have gone missing, and he can't find them to save his life. That's okay, though, because Saul will come home with a pretty good consolation prize, the kingship to Israel. Not a bad deal. Saul's journey to kingship is described in 1 Samuel 9 and 10 and 11. And as you read these texts, you begin to feel like it's way too detailed, way too intricate, way too descriptive. It's like reading through sections of The Lord of the Rings. Hi, I'm a nerd. Especially in the second book, The Two Towers, where there is long, extended description of walking through mud and bog and flies and water and weather. Why, God, is what you think in the middle of that book. You read this in a similar way. Why is there so much description? Why is the action so slow in chapters 9 and 10 and 11? Robert Alter, an Old Testament scholar, points out that this is to show us 
from the start, from out of the gate, something about Saul's character. In each circumstance, Saul is little more than a fumbling, bumbling fool stumbling his way into kingship like you and I find the bathroom in the middle of the night, right? Saul lacks good sense. Saul lacks wisdom. He lacks conviction. He lacks, above all, godliness. The reason that the narrator can't stop talking about Saul's good looks, it actually says at another point in 1 Samuel 10, the reason the narrator can't stop talking about Saul's good looks is because it turns out that's the only thing there really is to say about Saul. He's good looking. He's tall. What else? He's good looking. Saul's good looks are the subject because it's all there is to talk about, and this should beg the question, why is Saul God's choice for Israel's king? The answer to that question reminds me of a quote by George Orwell who says, by 50, everyone has the face they deserve. God chooses Saul as Israel's first king because he's the king they deserve. Remember last week in 1 Samuel 8, We saw Israel's request for a king. Give us a king like the other nations. It was a rejection of Yahweh as their king. God had always intended to give his people a king, but Israel, his people, rushed the process out of fear and faithlessness. Theirs was a request that was faithless and foolish. And so in response, God gives them the king they deserve, faithless and foolish. In 1 Samuel 9 through 11, we see Saul become king. And as he does so, he follows these four steps to kingship outlined by Walter Dumbrell, who says there are four elements to kingship in Israel. Choice, anointing, gift of the Spirit as empowerment for office, and mighty acts publicly recognized as fitness for office. What I want to do here this morning is do a quick flyover of chapters 9, 10, and 11, show you each of those four elements, show you each of those four elements. The first element is choice is choice. And I want to slow down the action just here because it's going to become important later. Remember that in 1 Samuel 9, Saul and his uh, hired man are out to find some donkeys. Now, donkeys are a pretty good commodity in this time. We have Southington people here. We have farmers. Imagine your tractor gone missing. It's a hefty piece of equipment that we would want to go find. Fortunately, Saul can't find the donkeys. Uh, It begs the question, if he can't find his father's donkeys... If he can't find his father's asses, how is he going to be a good king? Luckily, Saul's friend, Saul's hired man, has an idea in chapter 9, verse 6. Behold, the hired man says, there's a man of God in this city. And he's a man who is held in honor. All that he says come true. So uh, let us now go there. Perhaps he could tell us the way to go. The man of God is none other than Samuel, who is named a seer in this text. S-E-E-R. And what's funny about it is, this little portion of text, it seems to indicate that Saul has never heard of Samuel. This is like an Ohioan who has never heard of LeBron. Calling him a seer or a man of God is a lot different than calling him the prophet of the Lord who has ruled over us for decades. Saul, blind as a bat, goes to the seer to see. But it turns out that the Lord has been at work behind the scenes. In in chapter 9, verse 15, the text says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. 
He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. It is he who shall restrain my people. By the way, it's interesting. In in 1 Samuel 9, he is called a prince and said that he will restrain. That is different than being king and ruling. The Lord is still reserving kingship for himself a little bit here. In 1 Samuel 15, 1, excuse me, 1 Samuel 9, 15 through 17, we find that Saul is the Lord's choice for Israel's king or prince. So in 1 Samuel 10, verse 1, he is anointed. He is anointed. After sharing a meal with, with Samuel, Saul is anointed. Verse 1 of chapter 10, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Samuel anoints Saul with oil, olive oil. It's a common practice in the ancient Near East. Samuel kisses Saul as an expression of respect for and acceptance of the Lord's anointed. But then in chapter 10, verse 1, he goes on to say, And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you prince over his heritage. Samuel names a few signs that will come to pass, all of which will confirm to Saul that he is God's chosen leader. But of all the signs, one is of particular import. The most important of these is found in chapter 10, verse 5, when Samuel tells Saul that he will encounter some prophets near a town called Gibeath Elohim, the hill of the Lord. And Samuel says that the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon him. And he shall prophesy with them and be turned to another man. So sure enough, in chapter 10, verse 9, here come a group of prophets. They seem to kind of travel in groups for the most part in the Old Testament. And they come down the hill and they are singing and they are playing music and they are dancing. And and the text says this in chapter 9, in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day, and when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. I love the Old Testament. It's the Wild West. This is a unique thing that's happened. Here goes Saul walking up a road, sees some prophets, the Spirit rushes upon him, and he starts prophesying. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is given to specific people for a specific amount of time, usually. I have a inkling otherwise, but for now, the Holy Spirit is given to a specific person or people for a specific period of time. In the new covenant, as followers of Jesus, we are given a full payment, a full down payment of the Holy Spirit upon stop stepping across the line of faith, and the Holy Spirit stays with us forever. Ephesians 1.13 says, it's in Christ that you, once you heard the truth and believed it, found yourselves home free. Signed, sealed, delivered by the Holy Spirit. Saul is given the Spirit's anointing. He starts to prophesy. And now we have Saul in chapter 11, chosen by Yahweh, appointed, anointed by Samuel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, performing a mighty act that shows he's fit for office. In 1 Samuel 11, the Ammonites, one of the major enemies that Israel is facing at this time, they get a little squirrely. They rise up to do battle with the Israelites. And chapter 11, verse 11 says, The next day Saul put people in three companies, and they went into the midst of the camp in the morning and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And all those who survived were scattered, but no two of them were left together. Saul's mighty acts prove that he is the king that God has chosen. 
these four elements of choice, anointing, the gift of the Spirit, and these mighty acts are the way, of the, the text way and God's way of saying, here is the king that I have chosen for you. Now, this is all well and good until we hit chapter 13. Skip chapter 12 for now. Go to chapter 13. Now, it's not the Ammonites giving Israel a problem. It's the Philistines. The Philistines, remember, are a people group intent on dominating the Israelites. They are technologically more advanced. They are vicious. They are mean. They rise up to go to war when in 13.1 it says Saul was... Can we get some batteries? Check, check. Here I am. Send me. Saul's been reigning for an undesignated amount of time in chapter 13. But Saul's probably in his 30s or 40s. He's been reigning for a little while. The Philistines rise up. And in chapter 13, verses 5 through 7, it says actually something interesting. It's the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude, a.k.a. Lot's. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the ford of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Suddenly having a king, a human king, that sounded like such a good idea just a few chapters ago is now starting to fall apart. Give us a king like the other nations, that he may go out before us in battle. Well, now here we are going out in the battle, and there's Saul hiding. Saul likes to hide. In chapter 10, when he's publicly anointed king, the one in early in chapter 10 that I showed you is actually a private anointing, the public one, Saul decides to hide among the, bag the baggage. And when Israel goes up against a giant named Goliath, Saul hides in his tent. Trembling with fear, Hard-pressed as they are, Israel realizes how futile this human king situation is, but they need the Lord's aid. And so look at what happens in verse 8. He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Obviously, some point earlier, Samuel said, go and I'll be there in seven days. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here. Bring it to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering as soon as he had finished the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And don't you just feel like you can see Samuel walking in and there's Saul like doing, you have, if you have kids, you know this, like they're doing something bad and you walk in and they're like, <laughs> so Saul went out to meet and greet him. Oh, hey, bud. The smoke rising behind him off the altar, burning these things that he shouldn't be doing. Samuel said, what every parent says, 
What have you done? What have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw the people were scattering from me uh, and that you didn't come within the days appointed and, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, well, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal and I've not sought favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Remember last week when we said Samuel's got to feel like, where do I even begin? Again, just a few chapters later. Saul takes matters into his own hands, trying to get the Lord's favor on his own terms. His excuse is weak, I forced myself. Isn't it funny how sin always makes us feel like we have no other choice? I have to gossip and slander because if they don't know the tr- if, if I don't get to tell them my version of the story, I can't be protected. I have to tell them that version of the story so they'll know the truth. I had no other choice but to sleep with my coworker because, you know, my wife isn't. He says, I was compelled. By the way, this little incident smells a lot like what happens with Israel when they grab the Ark of the Covenant. It should. In both cases, people are using God's God, like using God instead of worshiping with him and walking with him. And it's hard to tell in the text. If Saul is entirely insensitive to the spiritual or just so bold-faced in his disobedience, it's hard to know. But in verse 13, Samuel says, You've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you with. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue What Samuel is saying here is that Saul has lost the right to have his offspring on the throne in Israel. He'll still be king, although that'll get taken away from him next week in 1 Samuel 15. But there's no longer dynasty open to him. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Why? Well, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. His name is David. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over your people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel calls Saul a fool. That's a, that's a harsh biblical word. Those are fighting words. In Scripture, the fool is not just like a stupid person. A fool is morally and spiritually blank, blameworthy, morally and spiritually bankrupt, not merely lacking in intellect. And, and to this fool, Samuel offers the sucker punch. Your children will not sit on this throne. From now on, we find that God is seeking a man after his own heart. Notice that Saul's reign in Israel, I mean, it has barely gotten going, right? He's like out of the gate, and he fumbles the ball. It only gets worse. Saul's life points to an interesting test case. It's a possible explanation for a phenomenon that you and I encounter all the time, a phenomenon that I've now called the Saul problem, it's something I've really wrestled with because I'm a pa- since I became a pastor. And I think it's partly because I'm young. I think it's partly because I'm optimistic. It's partly that I'm idealistic. And it's partly because I think when the Bible says something, we are simply commanded to do it. See, here's Saul living in the midst of what you might call spiritual revival in Israel. I mean, Israel hasn't been this spiritually healthy since Moses. 
a few times now. Well, it's interesting. He's living in this spiritual revival, but he has never once heard of Samuel. How can that be? I mean, in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, Samuel, it says, called all of Israel to him. It would make sense. It's not a big leap to assume that Saul would have come when all Israel came out. So what was he doing? Texting in the back? And now it turns out that Saul has been given a new heart. He is full of the Holy Spirit. Man, if this were the new covenant, you know what we would be saying? We would be saying, man, Saul is born again. Saul's saved. I mean, we've seen, sure, that Saul is fumbling and bumbling. He lacks courage, conviction, godliness, wisdom, but he's been given a new heart. He's full of the Holy Spirit, and yet when push comes to shove, Saul is spiritually a fool. He thinks of the worship of the Lord not something to engage in personally, but as a tool to be used. It's almost like Saul demonstrates all of the problems we saw in chapter 1 through 8. All of the problems, all of the things we preached about and said not to do is exactly what Saul does here in 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. The Saul problem is something I see in self-professed Christians all the time, and it is something, by the way, that is scandalizing and absolutely diminishing the church in in the West, in the U.S., our ability to speak prophetically and wisely to our communities, to our neighbors, to our friends, to live as missionaries. I see self-professed Christians all the time, even here in our community. I love you. This is not a them. This is a we. A lot like Saul. I mean, steeped in spiritual vitality, full of the Holy Spirit, given a new heart. But when push comes to shove, it's almost like Saul is blind to what really matters. And I meet Christians like this all the time, steeped in the spiritual just long enough to consider consider themselves saved, but in the end, not sold out to the kingdom, and in fact, inoculated to the way of Jesus. Just enough, but not nearly enough. Somehow, someway, if we aren't careful, friends, there's spiritual stuff around us, listening to the music in the car, and reading my devotions, and going to church when it fits into my schedule, and, and doing these Christian things, If we're not careful, the spiritual stuff around us ceases to be living and active and instead becomes sentimental and inert. Oh, I just love when we sing that song. It just makes me feel so good. Oh, I I want my kids to know Jesus, I mean, in this season when I can pencil it in, because that's so important. The spiritual stuff we surround ourselves with suddenly becomes, or slowly becomes, no longer living and active. It becomes sentimental and inert. I mean, the question we should be asking is, how do we avoid this? How do we avoid the Saul problem? Well, the answer is in 1 Samuel 12, which it turns out is a commentary on everything that's happened so far. 1 Samuel 12. In 1 Samuel 12, or right before that, they call together everybody to renew the kingdom. Well, they need to renew it for three reasons. One, they kind of got off to a bad start, Right? Hey, give us a king. We don't care about God anymore. So probably need to fix that. Uh, Probably need to fix the fact that a good portion of Israel isn't all that interested in following Saul. They are now that he's beat the Ammonites. Third thing that needs to happen as we renew the kingdom is, is Samuel needs to step back from this leadership position and go only into the world of the prophetic, into the spiritual leadership of people. So Samuel starts in chapter 12. He puts himself on trial. He says, hey, have I been blameless 
And they're like, heck yeah, you've been. Cool. So Samuel says, knowing that, let me tell you a little story about your history. And he recites to them their whole history in verses 6 through 18. And then he says this in chapter 12, starting in verse 19, which by the way, I have this highlighted in the text that I've been studying because I just can't get over this passage. I just can't get over it. I can't leave it. All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil. What evil? To ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, hey, you know what? It's not that bad. Don't worry about it. Wrong. Samuel said to the people, verse 20, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. (laughs) Yeah, you did that. It's what you did. You just need to sit in that for a minute, right? Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Just FYI. Samuel's command. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. See, that's the problem with Saul. His heart is far from the Lord. Steeped in the spiritual as he is, it's never gotten down beyond his skin. He's been inoculated. He's gotten enough of God to make him feel okay, enough of God to make him feel comfortable, but not enough that he's doing that which the Lord requires, wholehearted obedience. Just before this, in in verses 14 and 15, Samuel says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. It turns out that 1 Samuel 12 is a commentary on Saul's inner life and on ours. Saul fails to be obedient, as Samuel said in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, because he failed to obey the commandments of the Lord. That's why. You've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. In these texts, the word command or commandment appears six times. The word heart appears five. And you know where, how Saul got to where he was? He never gave the Lord his heart. He never listened to the voice of his creator. He never listened to the voice of his king. He was steeped enough in the spiritual, but not enough, to be, not enough so that it really mattered. Saul and people like him confuse participation with intimacy. They confuse presence in the room with maturity. It's a grave error. You've met people with Saul hearts. You can meet the people who talk about being Christian, who go to church regularly, but whose hearts are disinterested in truth, whose minds are confused and addled by unbiblical thinking, 
whose behavior is anything but wholehearted, whose hearts are disinterested in truth, whose minds are confused and addled by unbiblical thinking, whose behavior, whose obedience is anything but wholehearted, they have never stopped to listen. They have, ne- they have steeped themselves in just enough Jesus to make them feel good, to make them feel comfortable, to make them have a sense that on the other end of all of this, I get to go to heaven, but not enough that hearts and lives are really transformed, not enough that we're laying down our life for Jesus and his purposes. So my call to you, church, this morning is twofold. It's twofold. And the first one is to wake up. Wake up. American Christianity will make you sleepy and half-hearted and call it good. I love God. I love my country. I love my family. That's fine, right? Is it? Romans 13 says, Besides this, you know the time. You know that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Some of you, the alarm clock has just been going and going and going and going and going, and you've been happily ignoring it for months now. I feel like there's somebody in this room of which that is true. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us, Paul says, than when we first believed. Ephesians 5 has this little line. It's actually a song that the early church sang. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake, O sleeper, and arise, and Christ will be your light, is what other translations say. Might be time to wake up. Might be time to push aside the cloudiness of Instagrammed Christianity. Bible verses, quotes, might be time to put aside politicized Christianity, means voting right or left, and finding Bible verses to support it. Might be time to put aside the idolatry of the extracurricular. It's time to wake up and it's time to hear the voice of the Lord. Commandments are, first of all, things that you hear. And second of all, it insists on using the word commandment, not suggestion, not good idea, not an offer for perhaps a maybe way to go. They are words spoken from the mouth of the Lord, words that are for us, our daily bread. For many of you, it is time to put down the devotional and move from milk to meat. It is time to put down the devotional. Now, for some of you, it might just be time to pick up the devotional. But for some of you, it's time to put it down and stop Samuel says, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all 
your heart. I'm going to pray and uh, give Aaron an opportunity to lead us in a way to maybe do that. Lord Jesus, the human heart is wicked and deceitful, Jeremiah says. Who could know it? You can. You know what's in there. You know the lies that we believe and the idols that we worship. You know the silly things that we chase after. You know the ways that our eyes are not set on things above, but on things below. You know all of these things. You know our Saul-ish tendencies. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you this Sunday, June 16th, 2019, to offer you a fresh our hearts, our hearts. Uh, to kneel, to submit, to give you whole hearts today. Amen. Amen. So on the back of your program, there are two white boxes. Um, the first one says, what is God saying? The second one says, what am I going to do about it? So we're going to just take a little bit of time to kind of reflect on this. I wrote a few things down um, for my own personal reflection, and I'd like to share those with you. Um, I wrote, have I given the Lord my whole heart, or am I seeking spiritual looking things? Have I fallen asleep? I failed to obey the commandments of the Lord. Um, so I would just invite you to take a few moments, maybe close your eyes, just pause, um, ponder these questions in your heart, um, and I just pray that God would speak to you.
we're going to receive the Lord's table together. But I thought it would be good to also create some space if you'd like to pray with someone. So if Art and Pam would be willing to be at the back, and if Stephanie and Tennant would be willing to be at the back, uh, that would be great. And I will probably go in the back too. I will just find other people to help with the table. One of the little passages I had to brush over was when Samuel and Saul sit down to eat together. The Lord makes sure that Samuel gives Saul a double portion. And I'm thinking, you know, the Lord knows that Saul is just the hottest of hot messes. And still Samuel says, come here and sit at my right hand in the place of honor. Come and have this double portion. If, you, if your heart has been Saulish, Jesus invites you to his table. Uh, and he brings you to a place of honor. And he says, come and eat with me. Come and eat with me this bread, which is my body broken for you. Come and drink with me this cup that is my blood poured out for many in forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. The way we receive communion together at Regen is the first thing you need to know is that if you have a pulse, you are welcome at this table. If you have a pulse, you're welcome at this table because Jesus has prepared this meal for you, not us. Uh, The second thing to know uh, is you'll come forward, someone will rip off a piece of the bread, they'll hand it to you. Grace is given, it's not taken. Grace is given, it's not taken. Uh, You dip it in the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you lose it in there, don't go fishing. We'll hook you up. I need four people to help me serve today. Mike Ames, come here. You're welcome. broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, okay? Father, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and cup and all of those gathered here, that in the eating and drinking of them, this this bread might be your body, this cup might be your blood, nourishing us, calling us back to yourself. Our guy, John Wesley, tells us that at this table, we experience your grace, and so some of us will be sanctified, some of us will be challenged, some of us will be invited, some of us may even find that we are given a new heart. Give us new hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The table is open, and if you need someone to pray with, we'll be at the back. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows us, he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. 
May you walk with this week with the one who knows you and loves you, who does not deal with you according, according to our iniquity, but who responds in steadfast love and grace. Um, this is a heavy series, but God is doing something in us. And uh, anyway, peace. We'll see you next time.